Hey ladies, welcome to the Woman Podcast. My name's Katie Beza and I'm your host. And this episode is a continuation of a teaching series that we have started this year in 2021. So our good friends Rebecca Shatswell and Heather Hoyt will be leading us through the Gospel of Luke. And this teaching is recorded live at New Life Church in Conway. If you're local and you'd like to join in person, we would love to have you. We meet Thursdays at noon. And we hope this resource helps you as you read along in the book of Luke. And we hope that it encourages you that you can read the Word of God and you can get something out of it. So tune in and we hope you enjoy. Hey ladies, my name is Ellen Hutchinson. My husband Rick and I have the joy and the honor of serving on our worship team at our central campuses, but especially West Little Rock. Shout out to all my West Little Rock ladies. <laughs> um, last week at the previous sisterhood, I got to share about Luke chapter 19 and 20. And then we had a little mishap with our recordings. So I get to sit here and do it with you again. So today it'll be more of like a podcast type style. So I'll try and channel my podcast voice for you guys. <laughs> Just kidding. Um, so today we're going to be looking in Luke chapter 19 and 20. In the end of chapter 18, when Rebecca was teaching on it, she talked about how Jesus is calling us to look for the lost. And the description of that word that she used was those who are hidden in plain sight, that the spirit of the Lord would help us to seek out those among us who are hidden in plain sight and are in need of the hope of Jesus Christ. And chapter 19 really starts out with the story of a great example of this. Um, it is the story of Zacchaeus. Okay, so as soon as I say his name, some of you are probably already singing that Vacation Bible School song in your head, right? Zacchaeus was a wee little man, and a wee little man was he. Right. I don't know why the story of Zacchaeus, like for so many of us, has really like taken root as a story from our childhood that we remember it from Sunday school. But I really think it does it a disservice to um, kind of dwindle it down to a song or like a felt board story, because what what happened here was actually really, really powerful. So before we dive in, let's keep a couple of things in mind. Jesus has been traveling from Jerusalem, all, um, I'm sorry, to Jerusalem. <laughs> Jesus is traveling to Jerusalem, and it's been a really long journey from Galilee. And at this point, Jesus has lots and lots of followers, and so there's quite a crowd that is walking with him, and he's teaching kind of all the while. And so, he's headed to Jericho. So, Jericho in that time, well, first of all, it kind of rings a bell for most of us because it was the first city that was conquered by the Israelites. It was the one where the walls fell down after um, the worship of the people of God. Sorry, I just hit the microphone. (laughs) Um, And so at this time, though, Jericho was a resort town. And the Bible calls it like the city of palm, city of palm trees, which right about now is sounding really great. And it was kind of a retreat for wealthy people. A lot of wealthy people lived in Jericho. 
And it kind of makes sense looking backwards because Jesus has been talking a lot about money and um, teaching a lot around wealth and what it looks like um, to serve two masters and that it can't be done. And it seems like Jesus is really talking a lot about money. But, you know, think about it. If we were on the road to uh, Beverly Hills with Jesus and he was talking a lot about money, it wouldn't be that strange. So it wasn't that strange just people walking with him as they got closer to Jericho. So uh, Zacchaeus was one of those rich, wealthy people from Jericho. He was also hated by the Jews because well, he was a Jew, but he was also hated by the Jews because he was a tax collector. So he worked for Rome. He worked for Rome. He took taxes from his own people and usually took a little more than was necessary and kept some for himself. So tax collectors were synonymous with thievery. So he was really hated because he had betrayed his people. And in their sight, he had forfeited his right to even be considered a son of Abraham anymore. So he was kind of a Jew, but it was an outsider. And he was also, of course, short. (laughs) Uh, And in ancient times, by that standard, I mean, he was definitely no taller than five feet. So he was a man who was curious, like everyone else, to see Jesus. They probably heard that he had just healed a blind man and that he was coming to where they were. He was passing through. And so there was this huge crowd and Zacchaeus also wanted to see Jesus. And so he climbed up a tree that he might be able to see because he couldn't see over the crowds. And so the story uh, tells us, the scripture tells us, excuse me, that Jesus reached the spot where Zacchaeus was, and he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. Now, this is an interesting interaction. First of all, Zacchaeus was in a tree, and Jesus looked up. It would be very easy to miss Zacchaeus in this tree with the crowd and all the people around him trying to get his attention. Yet he sees Zacchaeus and calls to him. We also have no record of if they knew each other. So I don't know if this was like a um, someone that he knew or he knew of, or if this was just a moment where he was kind of showing off, calling out names of people that he didn't um, officially know. But of course, Jesus knew. So he calls down Zacchaeus, and um, it says that Zacchaeus came down at once and welcomed him gladly. Some uh, translations say that he made haste, and of course he did, right? He was being called down by Jesus, the one who everyone came to see. Because, you know, Jesus didn't have to come through Jericho. He chose to. And this small, hated man up in a tree out of a massive crowd, had a divine appointment with the seeking and saving Jesus. Zacchaeus sought out Jesus because he was curious. But Jesus sought him to save him. What a picture of a seeking Savior. And you know, Zacchaeus is kind of like all of us that he's just seeking because he's curious. 
right? A lot of times we find ourselves um, at the place in our life where we start to seek God. And sometimes it's out of curiosity, sometimes it's out of need, but we can't know all that God has for us. Like Zacchaeus didn't know all that Jesus had for him the dinner that was to come and the life change that he was about to experience. He just was curious. And I love how scripture reminds us that if you seek God with your whole heart, you will find him. And the reason for that is that God has always been the seeker. We seek, but he has been seeking us all along. And you can always you can see it all the way back in Genesis in the garden, right? Adam and Eve have sinned and they're hiding, and God comes seeking. He says, "Where are you?" Right? Not out of anger, but out of love. Where are you? And in this case, it's even more special because it's not just like a generic seeking. You know, the Lord looks over the earth for those who are faithful to Him. But in this case, He calls His name, and He says, "Zacchaeus, come down." It would have been really easy for Jesus to just start calling out the things uh, in Zacchaeus. He could have just looked up in that tree and said, Zacchaeus, I see you up there trying to hide from me. You know, you betrayed your people. You're a thief. Come down. But instead, he says, let's have dinner. I love how Jesus loves to start with relationship, right? He doesn't start with condemnation. He wants to sit and speak with Zacchaeus. And of course, when he does this, many in the crowd complained. And you know, honestly, I get it because he had been stealing money from them. I mean, it's like your cousin stealing from you and giving it to like your worst enemy. (laughs) They're like, hey, uh, Jesus, not only is he a tax collector, he's taking way more than he needs and we are supposed to be his family, which is why they're like, get out of here. You are no family to us. So I kind of get it. So they're all waiting outside Zacchaeus' house, and they're like, what is Jesus doing in there? Now, this is nothing new. Jesus is always searching for the outsider, right? But for this reason, it's a li- it feels a little different this time. And Zacchaeus comes out, and he starts to repent. And I would argue that he really shows it, because uh, he says, Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor, and if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Okay, so Zacchaeus is really showing that he means it. You know, he's saying, I'm going to give half of what I own to the poor. And then he goes even further, and he really puts his money where his mouth is, if I may make a little stupid joke because he says listen i'm giving half of what i own to the poor and then the rest of it i know i've only have because i cheated people out of it and so i'm going to return four times the amount that i took which is really more than the torah even required the torah only required 20 percent for restitution and he's saying i'm going to give even more okay which is really neat because uh he's showing hope Because Jesus has been talking about how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God for the wealthy. Because of this weird spell money tends to put on people, all of us really, you know, it can bring out this dark side in us. And a lot of people in Jesus' stories fail, you know, they fail to repent, they choose to love money. But Zacchaeus shows that it is possible to repent and to give away what used to control him. And I learned that Zacchaeus' name means pure. So I believe the Lord is showing us that what he says he means, 
And this was truly a life change for him. And Jesus confirms it because he says, today salvation has come to this house. Okay, salvation, we're talking about eternity, right? His soul. Because this man, too, is a son of Abraham. Okay, we need to pause there. Because that's a really big deal for Jesus to say that. Because remember, because of Zacchaeus' life choices, he has been kind of banished, removed from the children of God, from this family. And so, for him to say that he is a son of Abraham, that he's bringing him back into the fold, that it sort of alludes even to our salvation. Because later in the New Testament, we learn that that it's not because of um, it's not by physical um, birthright that we become sons of Abraham, but it's by faith, right? It's our belief that brings us into the family of God, and so Jesus is kind of alluding to that, and uh, he's saying that there's vindication for the outsider who has the audacity to seek and believe and repent and serve. And Jesus finishes by saying, for the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. What a powerful picture of uh, the kind of Messiah that Jesus is. So, the next uh, passage, sometimes in Scripture when you see those little subtitles, they almost make you think that time has passed or they're separate stories. And sometimes they are. Sometimes it's just like a snapshot. But in this case, this is one long story because it says uh, in verse 11, while they were listening to this, he went on to tell them a parable. Okay, so while they were listening. So, they're walking through Jericho. Jesus saves the soul of Zacchaeus, welcomes him back into God's family. And now I'm assuming Zacchaeus joins everyone else. And he, they're kind of walking. They're still making their way to Jerusalem for Passover. And this is many, many people. And so, they're still on the road, and while they were listening to this, Jesus goes on to tell them a parable. And Luke even tells us why he told them this parable. It says, because he was near Jerusalem, and the people thought that the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. Okay, so throughout the Gospels, we see the kind of misunderstanding that Jesus' followers and even own disciples had about what kind of king he was going to be, what their Messiah was going to do. And so, to them, they think, okay, we are about to come up over this hill. So, they're going, they're about to go through Jericho up to the Mount of Olives. When they get to the top, they're going to be able to see all of Jerusalem. And then the kingdom of God is going to come down at once. And Jesus is going to begin reigning there. And all of the sons of Abraham, all the family of God, all the Israelites, they're all going to be vindicated. And they're going to rule with him. And they're going to kick Rome out. And they're going to be in charge again. This is what they think. They kind of keep alluding to that. And Jesus keeps trying to tell them, um, even in chapter 18, he was so clear he says uh, he will be delivered over the to the Gentiles, referring to himself. They will mock him, insult him, and spit on him. They will flog him and kill him. On the third day, he will rise again. And the next verse says, the disciples did not understand any of this. <laughs> right? Like, Jesus is trying to tell them, I'm going to die here because the people hate me. And they can't understand that. So, Jesus is going to give them a parable to help clear up some misconceptions that they had. So, we want to read this parable in context. 
okay, we want to try and understand his audience, right? Who he was talking to. Because the parable starts out like this. A man of noble birth went to a distant country to have himself appointed king and then to return. Okay, I'm already confused. (laughs) I have questions. Okay, you're saying that a man of noble birth went to a distant country to have himself appointed king and then returned. Okay, that makes no sense to me. Why would he go to a different country to become king of his country that he returns to? Well, to me, it doesn't make any sense, but it does to this, to the listener, to the per- people Jesus was talking to, because we see it time and time again with parables, Jesus takes the familiar to bring them to a place of unfamiliarity, right? Take something you know, something you can understand to bring you to a place of deeper understanding of something that you might not be able to without that. So, what What is interesting about this is what Jesus is alluding to, or many believe Jesus is alluding to, because at that time, um, Rome was in charge, yet they allowed Israel to have a kind of quote-unquote king, basically just to appease people, to make them feel like they get to keep their culture and hopefully just avoid revolt. So they had this king, Herod the Great, and we know about Herod the Great. He was the one who, when he heard of Jesus' birth, he had every boy under the age of two murdered to try and wipe out the bloodline of Jesus. So, I mean, he was a maniac, obviously, a, a murderer after um, his own pride and vanity. And when he died, his sons got to divide up the land and receive that part as their land that they ruled and reigned over. And so his son, um, Achilles, Achilles, sorry, don't know. Um, he was going to become king of his section of his father's land. And so he had even built a palace in Jericho awaiting his reign. So this was very familiar to them. And our Achilles and his brothers had to go to Rome receive kind of their um, their role as king and then return to that land as king. Okay, so to us, it doesn't make sense. To them, it does. And they're like, is he talking about Herod's kids? Right. So he goes on to say, a man of noble birth went to a distant country to have himself appointed king and then to return. So he called 10 of his servants and gave them 10 minas. Put this money to work, he said, until I come back. But his subjects hated him and sent a delegation after him to say, we don't want this man to be our king. Okay, now that also happened because the people did not want Achilles to be their king. So they sent a uh, delegation to the Senate in Rome to try and fight to stop this from happening. He was made king, however, and returned home. Then he sent for the servants to whom he had given the money in order to find out what they had gained with it. Okay, so we know what his expectation was, that there would be more than what he gave them. The first one came and said, Sir, your mina has earned ten more. Well done, my good servant, his master replied, because you have been trustworthy in a very small matter. Take charge of ten cities. The second came and said, Sir, your mina has earned five more. His master answered, you take charge of five cities. Then another servant came and said, sir, here is your mina. 
I have kept it laid away in a piece of cloth. I was afraid of you because you are a hard man. You take out what you did not put in and reap what you did not sow. His master replied, I will judge you by your own words, you wicked servant. You knew, did you, that I am a hard man, taking out what I did not put in and reaping what I did not sow? Why then didn't you put my money on deposit so that when I came back, I could have collected it with interest? Then he said to those standing by, take his mina away from him and give it to the one who has 10 minas. Sir, they said, he already has 10. He replied, I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But as for the one who has nothing, even what they have will be taken away. But those enemies of mine who did not want me to be king over them, bring them here and kill them, kill them in front of me. Like, okay, whoa. (laughs) First impression is that was harsh, right? That was harsh. And to the people listening to this parable, they would think, yeah, that's about right. Sounds like a king acting like ancient kings do. Scrupulous and greedy with their money and harsh in their punishment. They were familiar with this. That's what kings do. Okay. So you look at this and man, he goes away and he comes back with expectations and each person, kind of each character in the story had a decision to make. And so let's look really quickly um, at the decisions that were made. So the faithful one said, yes, I want to grow this kingdom. He was humble. He was honoring and he took what the king gave him and he multiplied it. And so he was given a reward. And then there was the kind of lazy servant. The king even calls him wicked. So at first glance, he seems like he loses out. And you might think, I can sympathize with this guy. He said he was scared of this harsh king. But I want to look a little closer because upon second read, you're going to notice there's some holes in his story. So what he says is, I was afraid of you. Because you're a hard man. Okay, that seems fair. But then he says, you take out what you did not put in and reap what you did not sow. Okay, so he's telling the master that he's basically a thief and he's unjust. And he also says, you know, I'm afraid of you. But even the master comments on it. He says, listen, if you're so afraid of me and you knew what my expectation was coming back here... You could have done the bare minimum. You could have put that mina in the bank and it would have collected interest and I would have more money right now. But he didn't even do that. So he didn't do the bare minimum. And then he starts kind of criticizing the king. And so it begs the question, is he really afraid of this king? I don't think so. And it seems like he's kind of just putting on a show, maybe up to this point. He's like, yeah, I'm a servant, you know. Yeah, give me some money, I'll help out. I'm all in. Then his actions and his words say something else. He had no love for his master. And then there were the rebels, the ones who hated him. And the story ends with their death. So there's a lot to unpack here. (laughs) That is a heavy, heavy parable. And so I want to just take some time to think about this because someone told me once that 
the scriptures were written and I'm sorry, the scriptures were told to conceal and reveal. So if you have eyes to see and ears to hear that you would be able to understand, but if you didn't, then the meaning of these parables would be concealed to you. Let's pray. Father, we have ears to hear and eyes to see. Lord, if there is a misunderstanding about your character or even just the story, Holy Spirit, would you remove those and help us to have more understanding in all that you want to show us? Amen. I think as the modern reader, a lot of times our kind of decoder pen, if I may, is set wrong. So how many of you have seen A Christmas Story? All of us. We've seen it a million times. I think it plays 24 hours a day for like a month before Christmas, right? And the scene where Ralphie gets his decoder pen and he runs upstairs and he's so excited and then he starts to use his pen to decode the message and at the end, you know, it says, be sure to drink your Ovaltine and he's so disappointed, right? I think sometimes our modern minds have a decoder pen set incorrectly and so in the end the message is disappointing to us we feel like we've missed out somehow or maybe we're completely interpreting it wrong so i want to try and maybe set our decoder ring a little bit more exact today i'm gonna try (laughs) so i think if i was g if i was one of jesus's followers jesus tells the story It seems to allude to some like familiarity in the world of politics. So I kind of get what he's saying about this like king and his servants and then, you know, the rebels. I think I would pull Jesus aside and say, you know, hey, Jesus, I totally get it. (laughs) Definitely. I get it. There's probably some people around who maybe don't get it. So like, how would you explain it to them? I mean, I don't need any more explanation, but they might. Right. And I think Jesus would say, I'm the king. Not everyone will accept me. And I've been giving you this gift, right, of my teaching, and I need you to remain faithful. Okay, now let's go forward and we're going to come back to this. We're going to kind of take the long road around. So let's go forward and see if we notice anything about what comes next. So the next uh, section in scripture is Jesus's triumphal entry into Jerusalem. When I read this, I'm just reminded of like the strange tension between the previous passage and this one. So in the previous passage, Jesus is this king figure who is worthy to make all these hard decisions. And, you know, he's very much in the role of the king. And then in this next passage, I see him riding into Jerusalem on a colt. And I think about the humility. I mean, you know, remember in Aladdin when it's like, make way for Prince Ali? Like, don't you think that's what an entry into Jerusalem should look like for Jesus? I mean, he should for sure be on an elephant throwing out gold coins and there should be like dancers and trumpets and everyone should be making a really big deal about this. But Jesus is humble. And as he rides in, he is fulfilling so many prophecies in this moment. I am just, I really ask you to take time and dig into this passage of scripture and because there's so much in here, but I'm going to look at it from this one kind of view in, in uh, light of this parable that we've just read. So Jesus tells um, to a couple of his disciples, he says to go into town and get a colt, a little baby donkey, 
right? And he says, untie it and bring it here. And if anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Say, the Lord needs it. <laughs> Sometimes I think the Bible is so funny. Like, can you imagine being those disciples and you're like, oh, Jesus is always asking me to do crazy stuff. You're like, okay. And you go into town and you like find this cult that like, and it's tied up and you start untying it and the owner's like what are you untying that for and they're like um the lord needs it (laughs) all right like is this cool and they just kind of run away with the cult that's how i picture it probably didn't happen like that but funny nonetheless so jesus starts to ride into town on this cult some scholars believe that there were up to two hundred thousand people there for this so that changes my perspective because I've always kind of imagined there being like maybe a hundred people, you know, and it's just kind of this humble moment of like the the palm branches and the cloaks being laid down and Jesus is riding in kind of quietly on this donkey. Like that's kind of how I've always pictured it. But I don't think that that's really what it was like because this tells us otherwise. There's maybe a quarter of a million people there chanting and saying, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. You know, this is another moment that we kind of dwindled down to like VBS with like the palm branch. And we're like, Hosanna, Hosanna. But I mean, this is huge. This is Jesus's earthly coronation, really. He's coming in and they're saying, you're the king. You are the king of Israel. We recognize you as that. Now, think about that for a second. Jesus has been gone, and he's returning as king. So we're already seeing kind of a mirroring between Jesus and this king figure in the parable that he just told. And then we hear about these, uh, so we have these kind of faithful servants, right? They're saying, you're the king, you're the king, we're so happy you're here, we're with you. And then we have these rebels, this rebel figure, and the Pharisees are there too. And so they hear what's happening, and they say, teacher, rebuke your disciples. And Jesus says, I tell you, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. So Jesus looks at the Pharisees and he's saying, you don't want me to be king, but I am. And you can't stop it. And if these people don't cry out that I'm the king, the stones will. I mean, this is powerful. And never has Jesus fully accepted his role as king until now. Not that he wasn't always, but if the people would acknowledge it, you know, he kind of shied away from it until now right now he's saying yes you are right i am the king and so i think about this entry i think about the pharisees there they hate it but all of his faithful servants are there with him his disciples those he loves and you might think you know jesus is riding up going yeah i've been telling y'all you know you're finally getting it you know and kind of liking that quarter of a million people are excited and calling him king but instead he is weeping he's weeping for jerusalem he he says while he rides in he says if only you could recognize that this day peace is within your reach but you cannot see it for the day is soon coming when your enemies will surround you 
pressing you in on every side and laying siege to you. Okay, so he's calling out what's going to happen soon. He sees it. The siege of, uh, of Rome that Rome takes on to Jerusalem, right? And he's saying, the reason that this is going to happen is because you're rejecting me. Because you rejected my teachings. Because you didn't want me to be the king. It will cause your destruction. He says, they will crush you to pieces and your children too. And when they leave, your city will be totally destroyed. Since you would not recognize God's day of visitation, your day of visitation is coming. Jesus takes no pleasure in this. He finds no joy in the destruction of Israel. He looks at his rebels, his enemies, and he weeps for them. He says, I tried, I tried. And it's true, Jesus fought for the Pharisees. I mean, and the teachers of the law. He was always trying to make them see. He would teach these parables and and they would reveal to some and conceal to others. And, you know, I think about Jesus when Mary lost him. And, oh, man, poor Mary. Can you imagine? Oh, so they find him finally after a couple of days. And they find him in the temple in Jerusalem. And who's he talking to? Speaking to the Pharisees, he's teaching already, right? He loves them. Think about Nicodemus. Nicodemus is this teacher of the law who was curious and he, he wanted to know more. And so he visited Jesus like over the cover of night. So no one would know he did it. And he has questions for Jesus. And if, you, if you've never watched the series, The Chosen, season one, they have a great kind of portrayal of this interaction where Nicodemus is trying to understand what Jesus has been teaching and, and Jesus tries to help him by telling him about being born again and what this all means and time and time again they reject him and it's going to bring their destruction and so Jesus weeps and it it makes me think about how he he is the good shepherd and he knows that the 99 love him right but the he's always thinking about the one and every time he'll leave the 99 right he's almost ignoring these hundreds of thousands of people that are calling him king and he's just thinking about the ones who are rejecting him and he's heartbroken for them and how their unbelief has blinded them and so thinking back on this parable from their view the view of the listener you can kind of see how these characters are starting to unfold. We have the faithful servant, the faithful ones, the ones who love the king. And they could be very easily seen as like the disciples or those who uh, follow Jesus's teachings, right? And then there's this kind of false servant, the one who seems to be in it, but isn't really doesn't really honor the king doesn't really love him starts to be critical of him and that kind of to me tragic figure in this is maybe like a judas someone like that who who maybe seems like he's in but then when push comes to shove he doesn't actually believe so I think people are probably starting to understand a little bit more about the parable that he just told, but they just rode into Jerusalem and the kingdom of God didn't come at once. So they're like, okay, so 
what comes next, right? What's next? If Jesus is the king in this parable, what's he going to do next? Is he going to kill his enemies? Right? They're like, what kind of king is Jesus going to be? We just said he was the king. He's acknowledging it, saying, yeah, I am. So what is he going to do next? And so the next day, Jesus goes to the temple. They're kind of like, maybe he's going to go to like a Roman fort. He's going to go to Pontius Pilate. And he's going to start, you know, busting people out of here. And we're going to take over. He's our revolutionary king. But he goes to the temple. And he starts flipping tables. <laughs> and I bet his disciples are like, yes, finally. Like, especially Peter. You know Peter was like, oh, yeah. And he probably flipped a couple too. <laughs> He's been waiting for some action. And Jesus is so mad at these Pharisees and the people who are running the temple. And he says, it is written, my house will be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. So to give you a little context here, they've basically turned the temple at Passover into like Disney World. <laughs> okay, so hang with me here. So you know how at Disney World you want to like bring your own water bottle because it costs like 50 cents to buy a water bottle somewhere and but you can't bring it in, right? They want you to buy it there. And a water bottle in Disney World costs like six dollars, right? You're like, what is going on? How did I fall for this? I'm being nickeled and dimed everywhere I go. Like chicken nuggets are like twelve dollars. Like what's going on? So at the temple, remember, people are coming to make a sacrifice. This is Passover. This is their big pilgrimage once a year. They come to the temple to make an offering to the Lord. So many people will bring a lamb. Okay, so then think, okay, well, I'm going to bring it from home. But the Pharisees are the ones who have to inspect it to make sure that it is, you know, that it doesn't have a blemish. And, and they'll be like, you know, oh, maybe I think this one's not that good or whatever. So they want you to buy it there. So like, I'm not even going to bring it from home because they're not going to improve it. So they can't have to buy it there and it's totally upcharged. And then you think about like the poorest of the poor who can't afford a lamb. And the scripture says that they can make an offering of two pigeons. So two pigeons at this time should cost like 20 cents. And there at the temple, it would be like $20. Okay, so obviously Jesus is frustrated about this. They've turned his temple, his house of prayer into this marketplace where they're upcharging the people of God just to come in and make an offering. So you can see how they've lost sight of what their role is in all of this. So instead of Jesus going to Rome and starting to take out all of these like political leaders, he goes to the temple. He goes to the heart of Judaism. And he goes to the thing that he finds the most corrupt. This blaspheming of the house of God. And so it's not that Jesus didn't see all the other things going on, because I would imagine this frustrated people. They're like, I thought he was our Messiah. Like, I thought he was going to come and release us from this oppression that we've been in. And it's not that Jesus doesn't see it. He sees the social issues. He sees the economic issues. He sees the political issues, the injustice, the inequality. He sees all of that. But instead of dealing with these kind of exterior issues, he goes right to the center and he deals with the, the heart of it, right? Because isn't this time and time again the problem that Israel finds themselves in? Their misuse or their misunderstanding or their um, sometimes just flat-out rejection of the Lord and His ways lead them to these places that they find themselves in. 
It leads to these social issues and economic issues and things like that. It leads to them being carried away into slavery. And so Jesus goes straight to the heart of things. And isn't that what he always does? We see it time and time again. You know, he doesn't start calling out. Like, think about Zacchaeus. He doesn't say, Zacchaeus, you're stealing. Quit. Please quit stealing. You know, please return to your tribe. Please stop betraying your family. He doesn't say that. He goes to the heart of it. And he sits down and he builds a relationship with Zacchaeus, right? He knows that I'm the answer for all of these problems. And so, instead of dealing with the external things, which we sometimes can become very focused on, he went straight to the heart of it. And so, again, in light of this parable, the people are wondering, what kind of king is Jesus going to be? And he continues to show the Pharisees are fed up with this, right? Jesus rode into town like he's the king, and they're like, I don't think so. We got to get rid of this guy. And so this is kind of their like last stitch effort, right? They're saying, we don't want him to be king. Let's do whatever we can to stop this from happening. And so they think, okay, maybe the people will do it. Because, you know, they don't have a lot of power to like kill people, right? Because why would they? That's not their job, but they want it to be. So they think, all right, well, let's just try and get the people to do it. So they ask him a question. They keep trying to trap him. So the chapter, uh, top of chapter 20, they ask, tell us by what authority you are doing these things. Okay. And then they say, who gave you this authority? And Jesus replied, I will also ask you a question. (laughs) Tell me John's baptism. Was it from heaven or of human origin? Okay. Now listen to this. This is important. The Pharisees, they discussed it among themselves and said, if we say from heaven, he will ask, why didn't you believe him? Because they didn't, remember? They got him arrested, killed. But if we say of human origin, all the people will stone us because they're persuaded that John was a prophet. They did not ask God one time. They never came before the Lord and said, God, give us wisdom to answer this question. If they genuinely thought that Jesus was a heretic, blaspheming the Lord, wouldn't they ask God to like make that known? They don't ask God a thing. They just look at each other and they think, what are the people going to want us to say? Man, this is a danger zone. Fear of man over the fear of God. I pray in our culture that when we're presented with a hard question or if the Bible presents us with a difficult um, truth, I pray that we wouldn't just get in a huddle and look at each other and listen to each other and be afraid of what people might say but that we would stand on the truth and we would say look this is what god said and it may cost me my reputation it may cost me my well-being and in some parts of the world their life but that they would hold fast to what the lord said and not fall to cowardice like these pharisees did they go on oh they said uh you know we don't know where where it was from And then Jesus says, neither will I tell you by what authority I am doing these things. He's done with them. He knows their heart. He knows they are unrepentant. They do not want him to be the king. They are against him. And so he says, you know, forget it. I'm not telling you anything. And then he says, he went on to tell the people. Okay, he's talking to the people. He's not even talking to the Pharisees anymore. And he tells them a parable that's like a little bit more obvious this time around about a vineyard owner who has some people, um, he goes away and then he has some people that kind of take care of the vineyard for him. 
And then at harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard, which is his because it's his vineyard. But the tenants keep beating whoever he sends. So he sends someone and they beat him and send him away. It keeps happening, right? This would be like the Old Testament prophets that they keep trying to tell him and then they're ignored and jailed and killed and and says, but then um, the owner of the vineyard said, what shall I do? I will send my son whom I love. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they talked the matter over. Okay, what did we just see the Pharisees doing? They're talking the matter over. And they said, this is the heir. They know who he is. Yet they still say, let's kill him and the inheritance will be ours. Doesn't this paint a different picture of those enemies from the parable? It's giving us a little more context that when we say enemies, we don't mean like from this harsh king's perspective. We mean like genuine enemies. These people want Jesus dead, okay? They they really are rebelling against him. So, in the parable, they threw him out of the vineyard and they killed him. Okay, so they killed the vineyard owner's son, which Jesus is again like, y'all, they're going to kill me. And everyone's like, and the people said, God forbid, right? They still don't get it. And, uh, but at the end of that, I love Jesus says, what then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyards to others. This is huge because these are the Pharisees. These are like, this is the tribe of, of Aaron, right? These are the people that, the, the, the Levites that were supposed to be kind of like the, the stewards of God's temple. And yet the Lord is saying, they're not even going to be included in this kingdom that I'm talking about, which, which is like mind-blowing to them, to the Israelites, to, to think that someone who is an Israelite might be excluded from it. But it shows, again, like Zacchaeus, it's not by your physical, um, you know, uh, descendants it's from faith that you belong to the family of god and so the people were like no no jesus we would never do that god forbid you know and he looks at them and he says do you remember when i was coming into town yesterday and you guys were all calling me the king okay what they were saying was uh you know blessed is the king who comes in the name of the lord now they were quoting psalm 118 and remember how Mark Turnage taught us that a lot of times when they would say one little part of scripture, their minds were kind of filling in the rest. So this is what's happening here because this psalm is a messianic psalm. It is a prophecy of the one who is to come. And so by saying, by quoting this, they're saying, hey, we know what we're saying here. You're the one they told us about. You're the one the prophet said was coming. And so they quote from this prophecy directly, but they leave a part out. And Jesus looks at him, he's saying, look, you, you say I'm the king, but don't forget what it says in the rest of that psalm. It says the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And so he's saying, don't forget the rest of this. Like, yeah, you are calling me king, but I'm going to die. They are going to reject me yet. In doing so, they will make me the cornerstone. And he says that everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces and anyone on whom it falls will be crushed. And the teachers of the law looked for a way to arrest him immediately because they knew he had spoken this parable against them. And then it says again, but they were afraid of the people. So they tried to get the people to revolt against him. Didn't work. So now they're like, okay, well, let's talk to him about taxes. Let's see if we can make Rome do it, right? They're just saying, who's going to do our dirty work for us? 
And so they say, okay, Jesus, you know, what about paying taxes? Is it right to pay taxes to Caesar? And then this is kind of the famous, you know, mic drop moment for Jesus where he says, well, show me a Daenerys whose image and inscription are on it. Caesar's, they reply. And he said to them, then give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. Okay, so that failed too, right? They were hoping maybe like Rome would hear, oh, he's telling them not to pay taxes, but that didn't work either. So they're stuck again. And it says they were unable to trap him in what he said there in public and astonished by his answer, they became silent. They're like, man, how are we going to get rid of this guy? Time and time again, Jesus is showing them, I am the king, accept me as king, and they will not do it. So then they talk to him about kind of like a a technicality of the law. So they're like, okay, well, what about a woman who's married and her husband dies? So it would be custom for his brother to marry her. And then he dies and the other brother marries her. And then he dies and so on. The other brother and he dies and so on and so on. So like, okay, so in heaven, you know, who's she going to be married to? So they're trying to catch him on all these little things. But Jesus is really good about like, okay, so you ask a question and it's either A, B, or C. Jesus always picks like D, none of the above, and then just blows your mind with some like powerful answer that no one was expecting. And he does that again, right? And he talks about heaven and he really starts alluding to this reward kind of like he was talking about in the parable. Because he says, but those who are considered worthy of taking part in the age to come, And in the resurrection from the dead will neither marry nor be given in marriage and they can no longer die. They are like angels. They are God's children since they are children of the resurrection. And he goes on to talk about this. And so it says some of the teachers of the law responded, well said teacher, and no one dared ask him any more questions. Okay, so they've tried and tried again to stop this from happening and they can't. They fail every time because Jesus has reminded them, I am the king. Remember in the parable, it said that the subjects hated him. If you're someone's subject, it doesn't matter if you hate them. It doesn't change the fact that they rule over you. And so Jesus is saying, look, you can acknowledge it or not, but I'm the king. Okay. And so the Pharisees are trying and trying. And then he, he, talks about a couple things at the end of the chapter he's he's just continuing to affirm you know whose whose son is the messiah and he's saying david right i am the son of david but he even talks about how david calls him lord and basically he's saying like listen no middle eastern father is ever going to call his son lord so i'm obviously even above david and moses and abraham and jacob and all of the fathers of their of their um family and of this of this belief that they've had and he's saying i am the messiah i am the son of god okay landing the plane thinking about this parable they see jesus behaving a certain way it's different than what they expected it's different than what they expected and i think that jesus knew that The same people who were crying Hosanna on Monday, that a lot of them were going to be the same people crying crucify him on Friday. Thinking about this category of people that are against him. We see it. It's it's somewhat obvious now. 
right? And as the story is going to go on, you know, in the next coming weeks, as Heather and Rebecca finish out the book of Luke, we know the end of the story. We know it's going to happen. But the people listening to him didn't. And so we have to remember the astonishment that they must have had when they look at Jesus and they say, okay, I see his enemies. So is Jesus going to be like the king in the parable then? So he rewards some of us and he's kind of disappointed in some of us. But then there's these enemies that I see. So what's he going to do? Kill them? Because that's what the king in the parable did. So maybe this whole time Jesus is being, you know, He's betrayed, okay? There's the false servant. We got that. And then now he's arrested and he's being charged with, you know, this count of, of blaspheming. And, and they're yelling, crucify. And the disciples are like, okay, he's going to kill these people. Like any second now, he is going to wipe all these people out and he's going to reign as king. But Jesus is a different kind of king. And so, I believe he's saying, you might expect me to rule like those around you, but I don't. And so instead of the king killing his enemies, he lets his enemies kill him. He dies on their behalf. Jesus is a different kind of king. He wept for them. What did he say on the cross to his father? He said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. I wonder what that was like to witness. Because, you know, on this side of history, it makes sense to us. We know the end of the story. We are looking at this with a totally different decoder pen. And so I think about this this symbol of the cross which forever meant to those in the empire, it meant Rome is in charge and you cannot defeat Rome. You have no hope. When they saw the cross, that meant somebody was killed because they tried to come against the king, right? The emperor. And Jesus totally flips it on his head because now I see this cross, this symbol of death, and yet the king is on it. The king is on it saying, Father, forgive my enemies. They don't know what they're doing. What kind of king is this? What kind of loving, patient, merciful king is this? So the symbol that meant death and destruction and obedience to the emperor now means hope. Hope from a seeking and saving king. So I know this is a little bit hard because it's like a podcast, you know, but if you could, wherever you are, put your hands together, um, flat against each other like you were praying. Okay. Now I want you to think about this for a second. I want you to keep your wrists together, but let your hands fall backwards so that your wrists are still touching. Now in your left hand, you have the context of everybody listening to Jesus, right? This is all that they had. They had the Old Testament. They had their teachers. They had Jesus and all that he was teaching them. And that was their understanding. But then there's this middle point where our kind of where our wrists are, which is the cross. And we're in this right hand. So everything that we know is in the shadow of the cross. We have the full picture that they didn't even have. So what's beautiful about this parable is that it means one thing to them, but it also means something else to us because we live on the other side of this resurrection. So while I do it, I do believe that it meant, you know, kind of the the next week for the people that he was speaking to then, 
He's also aware that we're listening. And I believe for us, we look at it and we see Jesus is coming back. Our king has gone away, right? And even think about the the death, right? He went away for three days and he was resurrected and he said, you know, all authority has been given to me. And so he has been crowned. And when our king returns or when we die and stand before him, we are going to fall into one of these three categories. Jesus is the fork in the road that no one on earth can avoid. At some point, everyone has to decide which of these three categories am I going to fall into? Am I faithful? Am I false? Or am I foe? I don't know about you, but man, I pray that I have used what the Lord has given me, His teachings, His word, His power, His the same power that raised Him from the dead lives in me. And He says, I've given you this gift. What are you going to do with it? And I pray that it would multiply and that one day I would be able to say, like, you know, I did all I could do with what you gave me. And then he might be proud. And what, is he, what does the word tell us that he's going to say? Well done, my good and faithful servant. Let's pray. Jesus, you're the king. And there may be times when we don't understand some of the decisions that you make, but we believe you are worthy to make them, Father. And so when you do things that look different, like than the way we thought you would do them. We trust you. We say you are the king. Your ways are higher than our ways and your thoughts are higher than our thoughts. And God, all we can do is be good stewards of of the gifts that you've given us and let us do it all for the sake of your kingdom that we might grow the population of heaven because that is your desire. Father, that is your desire. You are a good king. You are a forgiving king. You seek and you save the lost. And I remember when that was me. And I thank you, God. And I trust you. And I put all of my hope and my allegiance in you. I pray that your name would be glorified through anything I might do that it would always bring glory back to you, Lord, that I would be a faithful servant of my good King all the days of my life. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, that was a lot. That was a lot. Heavy teaching, but so, so good. This is something you'll probably chew on for a few days or weeks or months if you're anything like me. So, love you guys. Be blessed. See you at Sisterhood next week.